Uh, welcome again, everybody. And uh, as Carol mentioned, we have the special privilege of having two uh, distinguished writers with us today. I will introduce the two now at the outset, and then the two will read, of course, separately, after which we will have a joint conversation. Now, Matt has won the coin toss, so he will go first. Okay. Now, I have to uh, ask for your indulgence, because I'll begin by explaining why I feel a, a special affinity with Matt Johnson. Uh, if you're familiar with his novel, Pym, uh, you'll know that it opens with a, a darkly comic scene in which an African-American scholar, or black academic, uh, at a small liberal arts college goes to confront the college president who has denied him tenure uh, on the grounds that uh, this scholar <coughs> refuses to serve on the diversity uh, committee. Uh, and during the confrontation, the scholar goes after what seems to be the trademark of the president, his bow tie, only to discover as it comes off in his hand that it was a clip-on. But <clears throat> in any case, uh, now I happen to be the chair of the Diversity Coalition at Wellesley. <laughs> uh, and one of the few fortunate things uh, you could say about it is that it is hands down the most ineffectual committee uh, on campus. Uh, and yet the committee persists with assigned and presumed roles and overdetermined and undermined by the very complicated history of race relations and diversity in America. And indeed, Matt Johnson opens his novel with that scene precisely so that he and we can re-examine and understand in new ways the history that shapes us even as we resist it, deny it, or simply misunderstand it. Um, in fact, we could say that in all of his works, wielding wit with devastating precision, Johnson takes us on a journey that uncovers so many of the layers beneath which history is submerged, whether we are literally under the ice in Antarctica, or at the site of a lynching in Mississippi, or in post-Obama America. Along the way, we gain unexpected insights into the complicated role that racial constructions play in the roles that we play, whether we, are, we call ourselves white, black, or anything in between, from Cherokee to Octoroon to Incognigro. Matt Johnson is the author of the novels Pym, Drop, and Hunting in Harlem, the nonfiction novella The Great Negro Plot, and the graphic novels Incognigro, Dark Rain, and Right State. He is a recipient of the United States Artists James Baldwin Fellowship, the Hurston Wright Legacy Award, and the John Dos Passos Prize for Literature. He is also a faculty member at the University of Houston uh, in the Creative Writing Program. Now, if Matt Johnson likes to look through the lens of race to survey our lives, Tracy Smith looks, in her latest volume of poetry, Life on Mars, through a telescope lens, and more specifically, that of the Hubble telescope, on which her late father worked as an optical engineer. To look through a telescope at outer space is not only to confront the unimaginable vastness of the universe, it is also to examine, on a different scale, life here on Earth. And indeed, Smith does both in her volume, pondering mysteries from a cosmic bird's eye view, while giving shape to the loose fragments that litter our lives. But what gives life on Mars its special power is its capacity to bring together the larger questions about what's out there, with the more intimate questions one faces, for example, when a parent dies. But it's not only in the elegiac moments that the poems look outward. It can even happen when the kids in the apartment above you make too much noise. Smith imagines the racket building to lift off decibels and the whole building itself taking off into space, uh, after which she adds with a comic flourish, let the heaven we inherit approach. The volume brings together the cosmic and the everyday, the mythic and the ordinary, the political and the personal, death and birth, the music of the spheres, and David Bowie. <clears throat> Tracy K. Smith received degrees in English and creative writing from Harvard University and Columbia University. 
She is the author of three books of poetry, Life on Mars, Duende, and The Body's Question. Smith is the recipient of the Canem Poetry Prize, a Rana Jaffe Writers Award, a Whiting Award, and most recently, the 2012 Pulitzer Prize in Poetry. Smith teaches at Princeton University. So welcome. Thank you. It's really good to be here, especially after uh, um, I almost tried to uh, fly up here during the middle of Hurricane Sandy from Houston, and this was a much nicer way to come visit. Uh, and I'm honored to be here. It's really exciting um, reading with Tracy. Tracy and I went to graduate school together um, probably about four or five years ago, um, something like that. And actually, the first, uh, the first reading, the, um, I was sitting there thinking the first reading, real reading, like New York City reading I ever went to was, uh, was a reading Tracy gave. Um, uh, and uh, and I, was, I was blown away by her then and felt very intimidated. Um, and, and that explains why I still do. So uh, I'm, I'm honored to be reading with her. Uh, the, I'm kind of I'm uh, sick of reading from Pim. Um, so I'm going to read from this new novel that I'm working on. Um, and uh, this is the first chapter. And you'll hear this, but basically it's, it follows a guy who's inherited a house uh, from his father and leaves Wales to come back uh, to America into Germantown to live in this mansion that his father was trying to renovate um, and died while he was trying to do it. In the ghetto, there is a mansion, and it is my father's house. Its lawn looks like it smokes its own grass and dreams of being a jungle. Every rotten timber mocks me. This house that killed my father is as big as it is old, an 18th century estate in the middle of Germantown, just past North Philly. It sits on seven acres surrounded by growling row houses on all sides, a frozen monument in an architectural class war. Donated by the Loudon family after the Depression, the city has used it as a museum until a fire, until repair costs beyond its means and interests. Before he died, my father bought it at auction, planned on restoring it to its original state, just like he did for so many smaller houses in the neighborhood, rescuing a slice of American history and then sell it back to the city for an American profit. I was a boy, and as such, I used to ride the 23 trolley past its colonial pillars in the years it took me to become a man, marveling at this artifact the rich white folks had left behind when the city flooded to its gates with the Industrial Revolution. Most things from childhood get smaller with age, but Loudon Mansion engorges because now I have to take care of it. It's an even bigger mess. It's a job for an army, not one person. It would kill one person, did. The street around it is even worse, littered with the plastics no one could bother to put in a can, cars on their last owner, the living dead roaming slow and steady to nowhere, the cab driver of the Caucasian persuasion doesn't even motion to get out with me when he stops, just pops the trunk open with one button and locks the doors again with another the second I get out. The locks click hard. The sound says hazard, environment toxic. I'm not white, but I can feel the eyes of the few people on the street on me, thinking from my appearance that I am. This is the one thing I hate. It goes in a subcategory I call America, which has a subheading called Philly. I hate it because I know I'm black. My mother was black. That counts, no matter how pale and Irish my father was. So I shall not be rebuked. I will not be rejected. I will go back to Swansea and live among the taffies. The front door opens, and I can hear it creak before I can see someone emerging. Sir Leaf Days, carpeted in cloth. He's got a Kenyan dashiki, Sudanese mudcloth pants, a little Ghanaian kente hat, it's like Africa has finally united, but just in his wardrobe. <laughs> Last time I saw him, he dressed the same, but he only had one leather medallion. Now he has enough to be the most decorated general in the Afrocentric army. I give him a, how you doing? And the Philly salute, a hummingbird-like vibration of my forehead, the most protective of nods. He gives me a hug. He hugs me like he knows I'm trying to get away. Uncle Sirleaf, don't give me that uncle mess. You're too old for that shit. I am too young he says, and releases me. 
Your pop was looking forward to you coming home. You know that. This house, it was going to be for you, you and your wife, your family, bring you back to the community. Sir Leaf is crying now. He sniffles right at my ear, and it did. You got to give that crazy old honky that. It did. I look down. There's a rusty Folgers can sitting there on the porch by the wall. It's there because my dad never smoked in the house. This can of ashes is full of cheap cigar butts mixed with the cigarette butts of whoever visited. I know without looking inside it because there was always a can like that in the porch wherever my dad was living. He knew I wasn't coming back. He was just going to fix it up and sell it for three times his investment like he always did. This gets Sir Leaf to release me, partially. He still holds my arms, pushes me back as far as he can to take a look at my face. Okay, but he did talk snap about how he was going to give it to you if you did. Wasn't his fault, was it? My daddy left me when I was four and died without giving me nothing but my stunning Yoruba features, so stop complaining. Sir Leaf was a lawyer, a realtor, a griot, and a kook, and he's good at all those things. My dad was his white friend. My dad was also a kook, and for three decades, they would get together on occasion to sell a property and drink whiskey and get kooky together. He's getting old, and he finally looks it. People age. Some people dehydrate. Sir Luf looks like someone let the water out and the creases have dried in its absence. I can't imagine how old my dad must have looked. They were the same age, but my father was one of those pasty Irish people with no melanin to protect them from the reality of time. He could barely manage enough for a mole. We should have a funeral or a memorial. He ain't want one, and we're going to respect that. Now, you know your pop. He isn't going to spend good money on a bunch of nothing, even if he's dead. His legacy, it's this house. It's this land. It's all he's done in the community keeping these houses living. It's you. Now, let's look at your inheritance. The door is stuck. The wood swelled, and it takes a lot to jar, a lot of effort to protect so little. Hell's lobby waits on the other side. My dad, plaster and plastic, rollers and paint tins. If his soul is left in the physical world, it's in the tools he left behind, the sandpaper, ladders and scaffolding. At the back of my nose, I can smell the old spice and prell, even though he hadn't used either since I was 11. I will be buried here too. I just know. And then I fight that thought with the words I've been thinking in the days leading up to this moment, paint and polish. Paint it and polish the wood floors. Tidy up whatever basic visual problems that might get in the way of a buyer's imagination. Build on whatever my father managed in the months since he'd taken ownership. Use all the tricks he taught me. That's what I thought. Packing to come back stateside. Thought waiting for the plane. Thought on it. That's what I tell myself now. Paint and polish. I even say it out loud. There ain't no roof. Day says back to me, go on, take a look at that joint. That shit's crazy. The wire in here is like 70 years old and exposed. It's a miracle he didn't burn the place down run those power tools. I don't know how your pops lived up in this mess. I mean, he should have rented the place or something. Craig was one cheap dude, no offense. And he wags his head at the shame of it. I don't remind him about a childhood camped out in many a shelled home. My dad had been doing the same thing since my mother kicked him out, and that was 28 years ago. I don't tell him about urinating in paint buckets and dumping it out the window. We got some things to take care of. I'm going to get going, but you better see what you're dealing with on the second floor before it gets dark. The power's on, but not up there. He points to the stairs. I get the message that he wants me to go up. I also get the message that he's afraid to. He was a good man. And he understood, as much of a hermit as he was, that you ain't nothing without community. Germantown was better for him. So how soon can you get it listed? I asked him. Sir Leaf sighs. I've missed something. I told you, you can't sell this place the way it is, not without taking a huge loss. You can't sell it for the land. It's historic, so it's hard to get permission to build on it. You're going to have to pick up where you left off. It's going to take a while, maybe some years, to get it together, at least the basics. You got shoes to fill, boy, he tells me. I just happen to look down when Sir Leaf says it. He's barefoot. There is no roof. In my book, that barely qualifies it as a house, makes it more of a massive cup. 
In most parts of the ceiling, there's nothing but blue tarp separating the interior from the elements. A few charcoal beams as well in those rooms where my father had knocked the remains of the fire damage down. In one of these rooms, there's a green canvas tent, the old Coleman tent my dad used when he took me on trips to the Pine Barrens and Appalachian Trail. Now its yellow plastic spikes are nailed directly into the blackened, fire-ravaged hardwood. Instead of camping out in the room of the house least damaged, as I would have done, as I would guess any normal person would have done, my father took up residence in a room that looked like a hollowed out piece of charcoal. There's a tarp on the floor to match the one glimpsed through the burnt shingles above, but besides that, the room is unprotected. It's the 19th of August, about 80 degrees outside and 90 in this room. This is a space he had grown sick in, had made the decision to not go to the doctor in, then died quietly of pneumonia in as well. I always assumed he would die on the streets of Germantown itself, knocked over the head for being the wrong race, in the wrong neighborhood, in the wrong century, but no. In the gloom, I drag everything, the fold-out table and chair, the lamp connected to the car battery, the propane gill, the five-gallon jugs of fresh water, and eventually the tent itself, one by one downstairs, to the relatively unaffected dining hall. It's the least damaged room in the whole house. My father made his new drywall in there, matched and replaced sections of the crown molding, had gotten as far as laying out cans of primer for painting. After closing the sliding doors to the hall, the room almost seems habitable. I set up my own camp. The pragmatic nature of it all. I am exhausted and jet-lagged and just needing shelter, and tomorrow, tomorrow I will go draw cartoons at a convention for spending money. All this lets me ignore that I am de deconstructing the scene of my father's death than laying down on it. I hear a sound and I'm awake and it happens so fast that I don't know if I've dreamt it. I'm not married anymore. There's no Amlin in the bed next to me to ask if she heard something too. I sink into despair at that, at the reminder of my failure, even though it's been almost 13 months now. So I even talk to her, it's not the same. And although I'm still drunk on sleep, I feel how alone I am. Then I hear the sound again and suddenly all I feel is fear once more. It could be the settling of the house, the symphony of old wood doing its nightly performance. It's so late, it's early. No sounds of car outside to hide the acoustics. Another sound and I think, I don't know. So I stop breathing. A minute passes and my fear congeals into self-consciousness. I'm a grown man scared of the dark like this. I get up to go to the bathroom. My feet are so loud on the floor that I know that real objects make real sounds, not negotiable ones. When I was a kid, I would lay in bed at night till I feared my bladder bursting more than the ghosts I suspected I would see on my way to the can. Around me, there are shadows, and there may even be ghosts, but I am too old enough not to refuse to see them. In the bathroom, my water hits the water laying in the bowl, and I look out the window into the gray of the night, the mist hovering over the grass, and then I see him. He's sitting on the tall grass, in the dark, all alone his legs folded under him like the Buddha, just sitting there. My water runs its course, but I still stand. I can't move. I look at him, bald, black, ageless, clothes without distinction in the gloom, in the middle of the massive lawn between this mansion and the street, and I become as frozen as he is. I don't move because I'm too scared to, even though I don't know why, even though he's not moving. He doesn't seem to be looking at me, or at least his head isn't facing my exact direction. It's facing the front door. I think he's a ghost. I know he's a ghost. That if you stood in the same position, the same time of night, that you would see him too. I get more fear from that, contemplating the fear that if this is true, what else is? But he stays there. A minute passes and he stays there and ghosts come in and out, dissipate, are insubstantial by nature. It's a man. When I move to pull away from the window, his head snaps up and he stares at me. Shooting down to a squat, I stay low till my legs begin to hurt. There's no phone. I have no phone, not in this country, not in this house. I cannot call anyone even if I wanted to. I am alone. My father is dead. I am a man now. My breath, it's so loud. I try opening my mouth wider just to get the sound to stop taunting me. I'm a big guy. 
225 naked, and I decide to act like I am a big man. And I shoot upright, head for the room of my father's work materials in, go to grab the biggest thing I can find. This turns out to be a long wooden spear, an extension for a foam paint roller without the appendage attached. I hold it with two hands. I am an African warrior or a Celtic one. I grip it so hard, my hands become even paler, adrenaline having replaced my blood, and then I go to the window, and I want him to see me. I want him to see my size, my determination, my intent. I look out the window, and he's gone. And for a second, I'm even more scared. I want to be relieved, but now I'm incapable of it. Lance in hand, I check the other windows. I see nothing. I go upstairs for a better view. No change. Germantown Avenue past gates is without life. Occasionally, a car drives past the chip cobblestones, but it's mostly empty. Too late to come home. Too early to drive out, which puts the time around 4 a.m. I stand there on the second floor in the burnt-out room of my father's. It has the best view of the house, I realize. And when, many minutes later, I grow more tired than scared, I head back downstairs to lay down. Tomorrow, which is today, I will play the role of cartoonist, as my life has cast me. I will go sit at a table in a large crowded room and smile at strangers, drawing pictures of their heads on muscle-bound bodies covered in leotards. And they will pay me cash. It is so absurd. I laugh a little in my head, and I need that to get into my tent again, drag up the sleeping bag. Fear that, I remind myself. Fear social failure. You're better at it. I saw a crackhead in the night in Germantown. This hardly qualifies as a supernatural experience. I chuckle a bit and go zip up the tent, and then I see the person standing by my door. It's a woman. She's not looking at me. She's looking up the stairs. My breath gets heavy again, but she keeps looking up there, not over at me. And she's a ghost. Not the dead kind. Her clothes are dirty sports gear with numbers of some team of Piper imagination. She's a white woman, gaunt cheeks like bones around the dark hollows of her eye sockets. If she looks at me, I will pee myself. I will shit myself on this very floor, and I will scream too. I don't care what she wants. I just don't want her to turn her head and look at me. She coughs. It keeps going, phlegm rising from behind her toenails with each convulsion till it gets to the back of her throat and jumps into her hand. It echoes through the house. It is more here than I am. There's a splatter, and then she's gone. When I hear the front door click behind her, I pull myself frantically from my back, out of my tent, grab my spear, and head for her. I am rage. I am anger. All of the fear has been replaced. It has been recycled. But I am also cautioned, too, at the lock. I think there might be a pack of them out there on the porch, the monsters, the rags falling from their skin, willing to ambush. So I look through the entry glass to the other side. I am back in Philly. Landing in an airport doesn't count. Sitting in a taxi can be done anywhere. This, this feeling, this is Philly. There's an old curtain there, and I pulled away, and the glass is hand-blown and old and distorted, but I see movement, and I see them there. I see the figures, a man and a woman, staring at the house, standing on the lawn, walking, walking backwards, staring at the house, walking backwards, away from me, until they reach the fence to the street and float up and over. I keep staring and waiting for more, but there's nothing there. I keep staring, though, until my breath comes down, but nothing happens out there. When I turn around, I look at this house. I look at the buckling floors. I look at the cracks in all the walls, the evidence of a foundation crumbling beneath us. I smell the char of the fire, still the sweet reek of mold, the insult of mouse urine. I see a million things that have to be fixed, restored, corrected, each one impossible, and each task mandatory for me to escape again. I see Sisyphus's boulder just with doors and beams. 
I can't take it. So I look out the window once more where nothing is coming to get me because the neighborhood doesn't need to because it knows I'm trapped here. And it has all the time in the world. And then I look back into the house and that's when I decide I'm going to burn it to the ground. Thank you. I usually kind of preface reading from, from Life on Mars by saying that initially when I was writing these poems, I um, started out just with an interest in exploring genre. And I thought that science fiction, which is you know a distancing device that lets us look at the future we, that might be in the, the making based on what we're doing now, um, I thought that might shed a different kind of light for me on the kinds of questions that I, as a, as a writer, have always been interested in, which kind of come down to how do we treat one another and why and what does that feel like? Um, so I had a lot of fun revisiting some of the films that I remembered watching as a kid. Um, Charlton Heston was in a, a large percentage of them. Um, <laughs> And that, that, that felt wonderful. And then uh, my father became ill unexpectedly and passed away. And I realized that the sense of space and, and distance and, and even thinking about the future as, as um, a real place became a really helpful kind of framework for processing grief and, and thinking, about, um, thinking about private loss. So those are some of the things that, that you'll hear um, in these poems. I'll start out by reading just a, a couple of sections, not in order even, from a poem called My God, It's Full of Stars. How is my microphone? Am I, am I good? Okay. Um, you might recognize the title of this poem. It's the, a line from the Arthur C. Clarke novel, 2001, but it's also the opening line from the, um, the film, 2010 which is you know, not as majestic as Kubrick's 2001, but um, kind of a guilty pleasure of mine. My God, it's full of stars. Perhaps the great error is believing we're alone, that the others have come and gone, a momentary blip, when all along space might be chock full of traffic bursting at the seams with energy we neither feel nor see, flush against us, living, dying, deciding, setting solid feet down on planets everywhere, bowing to the great stars that command, pitching stones at whatever are their moons. They live wondering if they are the only ones knowing only the wish to know, and the great black distance they, we, flicker in. Maybe the dead know, their eyes widening at last, seeing the high beams of a million galaxies flick on at twilight, hearing the engines flare, the horns not letting up, the frenzy of being. I want it to be one notch below bedlam, like a radio without a dial, wide open so everything floods in at once, and sealed tight so nothing escapes, not even time, which should curl in on itself and loop around like smoke, so that I might be sitting now beside my father as he raises a lit match to the bowl of his pipe for the first time in the winter of 1959. Charlton Heston is waiting to be let in. He asked once, politely, a second time with force from the diaphragm. The third time, he did it like Moses, arms raised high face an apocryphal white, shirt crisp, suit trim. He stoops a little, coming in, then grows tall. 
He scans the room. He stands until I gesture. Then he sits. Birds commence their evening chatter. Someone fires charcoals out below. He'll take a whiskey if I have it, water if I don't. I ask him to start from the beginning, but he goes only halfway back. That was the future once, he says, before the world went upside down. Hero, survivor, God's right-hand man. I know he sees the blank surface of the moon where I see a language built from brick and bone. He sits straight in his seat, takes a long, slow, high thespian breath, then lets it go. For all I know, I was the last true man on this earth. And may I smoke? The voices outside soften. Planes jet past, heading off or back. Someone cries that she does not want to go to bed. Footsteps overhead. A fountain in the neighbor's yard babbles to itself, and the night air lifts the sound indoors. It was another time, he says, picking up again. We were pioneers. Will you fight to stay alive here, riding the earth toward God knows where? I think of Atlantis, buried under ice, gone one day from sight. The shore from which it rose, now glacial and stark. Our eyes adjust to the dark. I, um, I gave a reading, uh, now it was a couple of months ago, in New York City with a photographer who has just launched uh, a project that involved selecting 100 images that he thought best depicted not the grandeur of mankind, but like the real appetites that characterize us and the real capacities that we have. You know, So they're dark images in, in a lot of ways. And he had these 100 images engraved on a small gold disc that has been drilled to the side of a satellite for um, cable television. And the satellite's been launched into orbit, and it's orbiting at a distance that will ensure that it stays in the Earth's orbit for 3.5 billion years. Um, and, you know, Trevor Paglin, the photographer, is kind of guessing that within that time, you know, civilization as we know it will certainly have um, ended, but the planet may well no longer be here. So the project is called The Last Images, The Last Photographs. Um, and so I, I felt a, a kinship between that vision and, and this poem that I'll read now, which is called The Museum of Obsolescence. So much we once coveted. So much that would have saved us, but lived instead its own quick span, returning to uselessness with the mute acquiescence of shed skin. It watches us watch it, our faulty eyes, our telltale heat, hearts ticking through our shirts. We're here to titter at the gym cracks, the naive tools, the replicas of replicas stacked like bricks. There's green money and oil in drums, pots of honey pilfered from a tomb, books recounting the wars, maps of fizzled stars. In the south wing, there's a small room where a living man sits on display. Ask, and he'll describe the old beliefs. If you laugh, he'll lower his head to his hands and sigh. When he dies, they'll replace him with a video looping on ad infinitum. Special installations come and go. Love was up for a season, followed by illness, concepts difficult to grasp. The last thing you see after a mirror, someone's idea of a joke, 
is an image of the old planet taken from space. Outside, vendors hawk t-shirts, three for eight. Oh, right. So God is a, a kind of like a recurring figure in this book. And um, he was kind of an unanticipated um, guest. And um, along with him came um, what I came to think of as God's cousin, the pronoun it, um, which seemed to kind of be projecting itself at all of the, the things that, that I wanted or needed to imagine or that um, I felt the presence of and, and the conundrum of. So. Um, uh, this is a poem called It and Company. We are a part of it, not guests. Is it us or what contains us? How can it be anything but an idea, something teetering on the spine of the number I? It is elegant but coy. It avoids the blunt ends of our fingers as we point. We have gone looking for it everywhere, in Bibles and bandwidth, blooming like a wound from the ocean floor. Still, it resists the matter of false versus real. Unconvinced by our zeal, it is unappeasable. It is like some novels, vast and unreadable. Um, this is a poem called Cathedral Kitsch. Does God love gold? Does he shine back at himself from walls like these, leafed in the earth's softest wealth. Women light candles, pray into their fistful of beads. Cameras spit human light into the vast holy dark. And what glistens back is high up and cold. I feel man here, the same wish that named the planets, man with his shoes and tools, his insistence to prove we exist just like God in the large and the small, the great and the frayed, in the chords that rise from the tall brass pipes and the chorus of crushed cans someone drags over cobbles in the secular street. I think um, a big part of, of the project of this book was trying to envision um, something that I felt satisfied in believing in, in terms of the afterlife. You know, For me, it was a given that there was one, but I just didn't exactly like what I had been told it looked like. Um, I didn't think the size of God that I'd been taught to um, believe in was, was the right scale to the sense of the universe that we now have. So um, I feel like um, a lot of these poems were, were about trying to, I don't know, synthesize something in, in a way that was at least momentarily uh, convincing for me. So I'll read some poems that, um, that feel like they come out of that elegiac sense and also that, that wish. This is called The Universe Original Motion Picture Soundtrack. The first track still almost swings hi-hat and snare. Even a few bars of sax, the stratosphere will singe out soon enough. Synthesized strings. Then something like cellophane breaking in as if snagged to a shoe. Crinkle and drag. White noise. Black noise. What must be voices bob up, then drop like metal shavings in molasses. So much for us. So much for the flags we board into planets dry as chalk. For the tin cans we filled with fire and rode like cowboys into all we tried to tame. 
listen. The dark we've only ever imagined, now audible, thrumming, marbled with static like grisly meat. A chorus of engines churns. Silence taunts, a dare. Everything that disappears, disappears as if returning somewhere. Um, these are a few sections from The Speed of Belief. I didn't want to wait on my knees in a room made quiet by waiting. A room where we'd listen for the rise of breath, the burble in his throat. I didn't want the orchids or the trays of food meant to fortify that silence or to pray for him to stay or to go then finally toward that ecstatic light. I didn't want to believe what we believe in those rooms that were blessed letting go letting someone, anyone, drag open the drapes and heave us back into our blinding, bright lives. When your own sweet father died, you woke before first light and ate half a plate of eggs and grits and drank a glass of milk. After you'd left, I sat in your place and finished the toast bits with jam and the cold eggs, the thick bacon flanged in fat, savoring the taste. Then I slept, too young to know how narrow and grave the road before you seemed. All the houses zipped tight, the night's few clouds muddy as cold coffee. You stayed gone a week. And who were we without your clean profile nicking away at anything that made us afraid? One neighbor sent a cake. We ate the baked chickens, the honeyed hams. We bowed our heads and prayed you'd come back safe, knowing you would. Probably, he spun out of himself and landed squarely in that there. His new body capable, lean, vibrating at the speed of belief. She was probably waiting in the light everyone describes, gesturing for him to come. Surely they spent the whole first day together, walking past the city and out into the orchards, where perfect figs and plums ripen without fear. They told us not to go tipping tables looking for them, not even to visit their bodies in the ground. They are sometimes maybe what calls out to people stuck in some impossible hell. The ones who later recall, I heard a voice saying, go. And finally, as if by magic, I was able simply to go. One more elegy, I guess. This is a poem called It's Not. It's not that death was thinking of you or me or our family or the woman our father would abandon when he died. Death was thinking what it owed him his ride beyond the body, its garments, beyond the taxes that swarm each year, the car and its fuel injection, the fruit trees heavy in his garden. Death led him past the aisles of tools, the freezer lined with meat, the television saying over and over, seek and ye shall find. So why do we insist he has vanished? that death ran off with our everything worth having? Why not that he was swimming only through this life, his slow, graceful crawl, shoulders rippling, legs slicing away at the waves, gliding further into what life itself denies? He is only gone so far as we can tell, though 
When I try, I see the white cloud of his hair in the distance like an eternity. Um, so it's hard to call a book Life on Mars without um, you know, kind of like announcing that you are a rabid David Bowie fan, which I am. Um, and I guess in some ways this, this is an homage to that vision of glam possibility and um, kind of shape-shifting magic that I uh, associate with, with David Bowie. Um, so I'll read a little bit of a, a poem that's an homage to him. It's called Don't You Wonder Sometimes. I, I find that I tend to write so many poems in sections, but then when it's time to read them, um, I make different choices. So I'm going to read just the last two sections of this poem. He leaves no tracks, slips past quick as a cat. That's Bowie for you, the Pope of pop, coy as Christ. Like a play within a play, he's trademarked twice. The hours plink past like water from a window AC. We sweat it out, teach ourselves to wait. Silently, lazily, collapse happens, but not for Bowie. He cocks his head, grins that wicked grin. Time never stops, but does it end? And how many lives before takeoff, before we find ourselves beyond ourselves, all glam glow, all twinkle and gold? The future isn't what it used to be. Even Bowie thirsts for something good and cold. Jets blink across the sky like migratory souls. Bowie is among us, right here in New York City, in a baseball cap and expensive jeans, ducking into a deli, flashing all those teeth at the doorman on his way back up, or he's hailing a taxi on Lafayette as the sky clouds over at dusk. He's in no rush, doesn't feel the way you'd think he feels, doesn't strut or gloat, tells jokes. I've lived here all these years and never seen him, like not knowing a comet from a shooting star. But I'll bet he burns bright, dragging a tail of white hot matter, the way some of us track tissue back from the toilet stall. He's got the whole world under his foot, and we are small alongside, though there are occasions when a man his size can meet your eyes for just a blip of time and send a thought like, shine, 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 straight to your mind. Bowie, I want to believe you, want to feel your will like the wind before rain, the kind everything simply obeys, swept up in that hypnotic dance as if something with the power to do so had looked its way and said, go ahead. Um, maybe I'll, I'll close with a, a poem. Um, I, I'm hearing my daughter in this little girl's voice, so I'll read a poem for my daughter, um, which is something she'll probably not permit me to read when she's old enough to understand it. But, um, <laughs> This is called, When Your Small Form Tumbled Into Me. I lay sprawled like a big game rug across the bed, belly down, legs wishbone wide. It was winter, work-a-day. Your father swung his feet to the floor. The kids upstairs dragged something back and forth on shrieking wheels. I was empty, blown through by whatever swells, swirling, and then breaks, night after night upon that room. You must have watched for what felt like forever, wanting to be what we passed back and forth between us like fire. 
wanting weight, desiring desire, dying to descend into flesh, fault, the brief ecstasy of being. From what dream of world did you wriggle free? What soared and what grieved when you aimed your will at the yes of my body, alive like that on the sheets? Thank you. That was the first time I've heard. I, is, this, is this the first time that you've read uh, your work in public? I mean, that piece? <laughs> right, that piece, I should say. Uh, yeah, in the current version, yeah. Uh, that's, that's terrific. Well, uh, <clears throat> I will just begin the questioning before we open things up to, to you all. But I thought I would begin with that image of the house, the damaged legacy, um, which is rooted to an ethnic place, but which needs uh, work for restoration, right? Um, and because it seems to me a kind of emblem for some of the things that both of you um, work with in your, in your works, and, and that is the emblem for home. Um, what does it mean to have a home in a multi-ethnic country like America? Um, but what does it mean to find a home uh, in a broader sense, that, that place to which things disappear return? but also the, the sense of home that you find in more intimate moments. When you say in the final poem of your volume, Us and Company, bumping up against the herd of bodies until one becomes home, uh, in which you find presumably a sense of home uh, in contact with another body. Right? So if, perhaps I can just begin by asking if both of you could talk about uh, the sense of home in a small scale, in an intimate scale, or in multi-ethnic America, or in fact, um, in, well, uh, the universe. I think the, the book that I was working on is, uh, I was writing a book about biracial experience from, from my own biracial perspective. And, uh, and I've been dealing with that issue um, for, for a bunch of years, about five years now. And, um, and in the process of writing the book, what I realized is that a lot of my biracial identity came out of growing up in the Germantown section of Philadelphia, which had a huge amount, Northwest Philadelphia, the Germantown of Mount Airy, had a huge amount of, of, of biracial kids and, bi and interracial couples. Um, but I had no real mixed race identity probably until I was like in my mid thirties. So um, I realized when I started thinking about that, um, I realized that Germantown was a big part of that. And living in a neighborhood that used to be a wealthy white neighborhood um, that over the years had, had evolved into a working class black neighborhood. And um, I realized that was kind of a physical representation of that. And then um, the question of home end up, ends up being inevitable with it. I, I remember when I first started writing, I remember hearing, it was one of the big poetry festivals. And uh, I think it was Sekou, uh, somebody, but they were talking about how important home was in their work. And uh, at that point, I'd been to enough poetry readings that I was sick of people talking about home, <laughs> you know? And, like, and particularly Brooklyn. I was sick of people talking about Brooklyn endlessly, like they were the ones that discovered it, you know? And, uh, and I just, um, so I thought home was just like this overdone, useless thing. But then I found, um, one, home is a lot bigger than just where you, where you live or where you grew up, but, but it, how you connect into the universe, which is something we continue to evolve in. And I've heard in your work over the years that that's always been um, a, a question. Yeah. Uh, what I find is that um, the external concerns that I have, like whatever I'm upset by or, or obsessed with, um, changes the lens through which I look at or consider home. So, um, you know, these poems that in this book I was thinking, you know, trying to think on the big scale. Um, and it wasn't until after I'd kind of committed to that that I, I stopped and, and, and was considering my family and my father. And it was then that I, I remembered, as if I had forgotten for like 30 years, 
um, that for a few years when I was a, a young child, my father was working you know, on the Hubble. And then I remembered so many things about him and his view of the world that I just hadn't used for a while, thinking about science fiction and how it was something that was fascinating to him. And he was a, you know, a lover of Larry Niven and, and Star Trek. And, um, thinking you know that that external sense of you know just curiosity helped give something back to me that i had but that i hadn't remembered yeah but i also i mean thinking i guess i do write a lot of poems that have to do with you know home and within you know w within arm's reach or within the the bloodlines but i also am i'm really thinking about america and the the kinds of unsettling questions that that being an american um raises for me and um one of the things that you know I, I think is is fascinating and, and terrifying is the fact that we still, you know, the, the damage that we are are very much actively committing, you know, on private, you know, scale, but also in, in nationally, and and trying to understand if in writing a poem, I can um, just complicate my sense of who the the us is that I'm thinking about when I'm in my, my real life, when I say, well, we are good and they, whoever they are, if it's the government or if it's you know, different groups, they are bad. If I can unsettle that somehow and, and put myself in a different position and maybe kind of become reawakened to a different sense of like, how I'm complicit and, and also maybe what possibilities I should be listening for or, or, or working toward. So home is something that can also be really chastening in a way. Yeah. You know, it's funny. When you hear you talking that, one of the things that's been so cool about um, writing about, when you're talking about complicating it, like getting further into it, is every time I think that, like, some issue is a big, like, larger political issue, once I get into it, I realize that it's actually, for me, a lot about the personal, you know? And every time I think something's about the personal, I realize it has this much larger, um, you know, uh, cultural significance. And, and, uh, and, and having, and being forced again and again uh, and humble too by that realization that you that you you can't really separate them that they they end up looping and this question of home where you, you can think of, of it in completely personal terms but even then it ends up becoming this larger you know existential question that's that's one of the things I've been enjoying about writing. Can I follow that up with a, a more political question and you can take it uh, both of you <clears throat> whichever in whichever direction that you'd like. Um, for those of you who are familiar with uh, Matt's uh, graphic novel, Right State, it imagines a post-Obama America with a second uh, black president and an assassination plot uh, cooked up by, well, what should we call them, the lunatic right? Uh, or is that uh, a redundant? But in any case. Um, <laughs> we are definitely sorry. Massachusetts. <laughs> we are not Texas. Um, but uh, in any case, um, this was written before um, Obama's re-election. Um, do you think that um, America is still heading in that direction, in the, in the direction that you envisioned? Um, and so th this is another way of asking, uh, from a political standpoint, uh, what home looks like is um, not, uh, in the post-Obama re-election period. I don't know. I mean, you've already saw, like, I thought last, the last couple of years, you've already saw a lot of dead ending, you know, where, where like, this election might indicate that the, that the current, the current configuration um, of kind of the populist right is just not going to work as a national party. And also, you have, um, you have people from my dad, my dad's a, a, a Irish American uh, a guy from a family that's been in America for about 200 years, and mostly in the art museum area of Philadelphia. And uh, so his, my family, that world, they're used to thinking of themselves as being the center of America. Even though they were Catholic, they still thought they were the center <laughs> of America. And, uh, and they're being forced now to start realigning their, the way they're, they're, they're thinking and not thinking we own it and other people are here, but that we are a group, all of us make up America together. And that's a seismic shift, um, you know? and, and even when we kind of write it off, it's still, it's still a big, pretty big shift, and it takes, um, you know, there's some decent people who just have to start thinking about America in different ways. And I think there's also some people who are very scared. I mean, I can't imagine 
that would, if you're thinking that this, that you are the vast majority of America and basically of ownership, and all of a sudden you find out you don't, that would be really scary, you know? Because also it would be like, you know. It's like a science fiction reality. Yeah, <laughs> it is. Yeah, and it's like, I'm like, and the fear of not being, what does it mean that I'm not, in, if I'm, if I've been, if I've been in control and making all the rules and somebody else is making all the rules, what does that mean for me? They're going to come for me now. Like, and all of a sudden, all this guilt comes in too. Like, well, we were kind of bad to those guys. Now they're going to be running the show. What's going to happen then? So there's, there's a lot of understandable, uh, and to me, it's understandable, the, the angst around that. And uh, when I started writing that book, it was right after Obama. I wrote the whole thing like probably about six months after Obama had been elected. And I was thinking that, um, that there's a bunch of people who are just not going to accept where direction America's going and that they're going to get more and more desperate. And that, to me, like, the, and when I did that, we pitched it to the people, because I, I, I have a weird career, because I do kind of, I do literary fiction in prose. And then in comic books, I do just, like, kind of genre stuff with literary overtones. But it's genre fiction. So, um, you know, I thought I wanted to do a thriller that's kind of based in this world, and the editor was like, well, I don't think, I think, you know, it was right after the election. She was like, I don't think, I think that's all over. <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> and then we, and, you know, we working on the book. And, like, every time something horrible happened out in the world, my editor would send me an email like, look, we're on the right track. And, like, I felt horrible about it. And then, um, and I think it's continuing to go in that. It's going to be interesting. Like, this was a huge wake-up call this, this last election for a bunch of people. And um, I'm excited about it just in the sense I think there's been, like, we've been, we've been using populist um, uh, kind of um, uh, uh, scapegoating for a while in this country and been able to get away with it. And it's not going to be able to be used in the same way um, going forward. They're going to find somebody else to, you know, it, 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 blaming blacks, uh, using blacks as, as, as um, scapegoats lasted for a while. And that didn't work as well. And it was using gays as scapegoats, and that doesn't work as well. Um, they're using Latinos as scapegoats. And then they, somebody had the brilliant idea of going after 51% of the population and using women as scapegoats, and that's not really a good <laughs> electoral plan. So it's going to be interesting to see um, how it resembles. Re but um, a lot of times of the story, what you do is you're taking existing tensions, um, taking them to their logical extreme, and then kind of playing with it. Um, and I do the, and that was with the genre thesis, but when I write, my literary fiction tends to be satire, and the, you do the same thing with satire. You just kind of pull things to a logical extreme, and then you see what, what it does. I feel like I'm interested in, um, you know, I guess we, we become, uh, I, I become aware every four years of the way that language is being contorted and spun, um, and, you know, around political issues, trying to persuade um, people of something that may or may not be plausible. And so I'm interested in, as a writer, as a poet, in thinking about how language is, is going to determine the sense of, of possibility that we as a nation can live with and, and, and come to. And, and um, I don't know, my, my work, I, I feel like a lot of my poems, though I don't think I read any of them tonight, are, are thinking about political issues simply because a poem is something that helps me to spend time with something and turn it around in a few different directions and look at it um, slowly. And so I'm interested in thinking about um, how asking the right questions about things like the environment and um, you know race still such a still a big thing it's kind of crazy um, um, and power uh, might just present a different different set of, of possible scenarios although it's hard not to be um, you know a human and and not it's hard to be a human and not have this sense that there's always a dystopic scenario that's that's <laughs> at hand right I at my Thanksgiving at, at you know, like 11 o'clock the dinner table conversation um, shifted toward, okay, what are your top three disaster scenarios? You know, is it climate? Is it, you know, dirty bombs? Is it, you know, like all these things. And I feel like those are, they're real, not only possibilities, but certain of them are probabilities that, that if we can become comfortable thinking and speaking about, then maybe we'll be better equipped to respond if, you know, the, the steps that precede them seem to be imminent. Well, maybe I can take those questions and, and, and move them uh, back 
uh, into <laughs> space. Uh, one of the ultimate disaster scenario, it seems to me, that you uh, contemplate in life on Mars is the slow evolution um, of all matter into black matter over billions of years, right? It seems to me there's a, a tension in your poetry uh, between, on the one hand, a sense that there really is no purposive or providential mind out there, that, that, it, that we're only going to become black matter. Uh, and on the other, that there is something out there that will answer us back, or as, as you put it uh, brilliantly, that will comprehend us back, right? Um, is your poetry mainly driven by the desire to articulate that tension, or are you trying to resolve that tension <laughs> in your poetry? Well, don't we all want to resolve it privately? Um, I don't know if that's possible, but for me, it's really just, um, I guess if I'm really honest about these poems in particular, I wanted to find a belief system. I wanted to name it for myself. I'm not thinking about anyone else. I was writing private poems about the ongoing private curiosities and concerns. And, um, you know, I love the idea that we know so little about this vast place that we belong to. And I'm all, I always get excited. I have, such, I, don't, I have no mind for science, but, you know, the things that I can hold on to for, you know, a month or so and feel like I understand, I, I get excited when people start talking about, you know, the dark matter and, and how there's so much that we just can't see or understand. And for me, all of the darkness and the impenetrability um, seems to contain amazing possibility and, and like uh, generative mystery. And so those poems are, I felt like I was boxing with it, like trying to say, okay, maybe it's like this. And I'd do a few, you know, rounds with that and the poem would end or I'd, you know, get knocked out, whatever the, the metaphor is leading us toward. But, um, and then I'd say, okay, well, let me get back up and see what else. And so I, I felt like it was a, a, a wish you know, the impossible wish of trying to figure something out that brilliant minds can't figure out, but feeling like if I could sit down with it for long enough, I could convince myself of something that might feel true for, you know, long enough to write a poem. And then the next round would bring some other kind of uh, speculative um, stance. <laughs>